So John chapter 19, we'll pick up this morning uh, at verse 31 and read to the end of the chapter at verse 42 in a sermon entitled, Truly Human, Truly Dead. Truly Human, Truly Dead. Would you stand for the honor of reading God's word here together? And we will read once again John 19, starting in verse 31 and ending at the end of the chapter in verse 42. The precious, inerrant, infallible, living word of God says this. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again another scripture says they shall look on him whom they pierced. <clears throat> After these things Joseph Arimathea became being a disciple of Jesus but a secret one for fear of the Jews asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices as the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. Let's go to Lord in prayer and thank him for his word. Father, we thank you that your word is living and it's active and sharper than any two-edged sword. That it pierces our souls, Father, that as we read it, as we hear it read, as we hear it preached and explained, the living word uh, united with the work of your spirit brings dead souls to life. So, Father, we thank you for this word, and Lord, we thank you for the gospel message. We pray that it be presented clearly today, and we pray, Lord, for the church and the message that we hear from the word, that it would sanctify us and grow us into Christ-likeness. Uh, Father, we humbly submit ourselves before your word's authority, knowing that it is our only authority given from you to us for our good and for your glory, that you would make us into image bearers of Christ, that we would look more like Jesus today than we did yesterday because of the power that's found in your word. So the Lord, now we ask that you would use that power and mold us into the image of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. So we're going to jump right in. It's kind of a similar theme we saw last week. I think you'll see a lot of similar verses here. But I want us to begin by reading again verse 31. And notice some, some little um, minds of wisdom we can glean from God's word. Verse 31 says, Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. We see here, once again, a, a little bit of irony, much like we saw earlier, don't we? Here, the Jews were concerned about being ceremonially clean 
to be able to participate in the Passover feast, and yet they were not troubled in the least in plotting for the murder of the innocent Christ. Uh, Concerned about being ceremonially clean, they, they wanted to partake in the Passover meals, But while they're doing that, they've got no trouble at all breaking the sixth commandment. This is what we see in our text. It's a very similar thing. That's the first thing we noticed in our our text this morning. The Jews are concerned about the law as it related to uh, allowing a body to remain on a tree overnight. If you want a reference for that, by the way, it's in Deuteronomy 21-23. That's kind of why they didn't want the the body to hang overnight, because it did say so in the Word of God. But they they weren't concerned at all over the murder they just committed. That's astounding, isn't it? But yet, I find something similar in our day. It's amazing how often the Pharisees and how often we strained at gnats while swallowing camels. We do the same thing in our day today. Strain at gnats while swallowing camels. It's a regular thing in the way the Pharisees in particular are presented to us in the scripture accounts. Yet church, how often do we look like them? How often do we focus our concern on particular details of keeping God's law while blowing it in the majors? How many of us husbands are more prone to this or that detail to some particular commandment and yet have little to no concern of how we're treating our wives or loving them? How many of us are quick to show a loving and gentle spirit to others, but we fail to show that same attitude to our spouses, our children, our parents, or our siblings? How many of us, let's be honest, are very careful of the details and the matters that are concerned with worship, but we readily allow ourselves to get angry and even hate others, which, according to Jesus, is to commit murder? It is easy to fall into the way of the Pharisees. And this is always recognized to me when my wife and I are having a dispute at the dinner table, right? Right before we sit down to eat and we're not treating each other in in very kind ways whatsoever. And what do we do? We gather with our family, we sit there, and then we're going to pray over our food. (laughs) And then after the prayer, we're going to continue to dispute with one another. And and we just think, yes, it's so important for us to pray over our food. Absolutely. That's a minor command that we need to to make a major command. We need to pray and and ask God's blessing over our food. But what are we doing in the eyes of our children in that way? Are we showing them that all commands from God are commands from God? Or are we straining at gnats while swallowing camels? Now, it's easy to do this, but the church, the solution is certainly not to say, okay, we'll forget the minor details. Let's just focus on the big ones. No, the idea is to be concerned with all of God's law, to not become masters of the intricate detail while turning a blind eye to the major details. We need to pray that God would give us a heart that examines both according to his word to be concerned about the small and the great matters that are within our lives so we wouldn't look like these Pharisees do in our text today. Let's move on now and look at verses 32 through 34 here in our text. One of the reasons I didn't include this passage in last week is 
because of the brutality of some of the things we see, and I didn't want that for our family Sunday, but this is hard for me to read. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man, of, of the other, who was crucified with him, but coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. So here we see the, really the wickedness and brutality of man. If I could just summarize those verses, it would be that. In order to make sure that, that none of the men were, were left hanging on the cross overnight, what the soldiers went up and they did is they went to break their legs. Now in crucifixion, already it was a brutal and torturous thing. We talked about that. But now what they are doing to these, men's, to these men make it even more gruesome. So in order to hasten death, the men's legs were broken. And, and once their legs were broken, they wouldn't be able to use them to push up their bodies and catch their breath. The way they broke these men's legs was even more atrocious. What they would do is they would take an iron mallet and they would just smash the legs of their victims until they were broken. What a terrible thing to do to another human being. Imagine the pain of crucifixion. I remember one time at my seminary, um, we had a, a, a church historian that came and he brought with him an actual model size of a cross. And he didn't nail anybody to that cross, but he had a little pocket and he picked one of the stronger looking guys in our seminary just to, just to hold on. Just to hold on to handles and put his feet in this pocket and see how long he could last. And what the guy found is as he would let his legs rest, there would be strain on his arms and it would be difficult for him to breathe. And so what he'd have to do is he'd have to push up on his legs in order uh, to feel more comfortable. But doing that, there would be such pain shooting through his legs. That's just hanging on the cross, not even hanging by nails. And now they've come to just break those legs. Could you imagine the brutality of such things? What horror. You would basically die by way of suffocation because you wouldn't be able to catch your breath. And they set out to break the legs of all three men, but when they came to Jesus, he was already dead, right? But notice what the soldier did. Even though they knew Jesus was dead, he still pierced his side anyway. For no apparent reason to do this. They knew he was dead, but they pierced his side. Anyway, realistically, this is just a picture of how wicked and brutal men can be. Uh, this is nothing less than gratuitous violence. The soldier didn't need to spear Jesus to know he was dead, but he did it anyway. He simply had no regard for the body of Christ and no regard for humanity. And friends, I hate to say this, but this is seen so clearly in our day-to-day -day as well. I mean, even thinking about what our community has been through over the last several weeks, the, the, the quick thought for human beings uh, to grab a gun and take the life of another human being for the sake of having their name disrespected, it's astronomically wicked. That you would ever feel the need because your name was devalued or disrespected because you are your own God to so quickly take a gun and end someone's life? It's vicious and it's brutal and it has no regard for Christ and his church and the value of human life. It's heartbreaking to think about this, but, but friends, if there's any encouragement whatsoever, 
Know this. Man has always been brutal and wicked. There's no, there's no change. <laughs> Study history. Mankind, apart from Christ, apart from the work of Christ and calling to be their ch- his children, they will remain in their wickedness and their brutality. And what we see in human hatred today is simply the capability of our own hearts apart from Christ. But praise God for his glorious grace that we were that wicked and that brutal. And our hearts apart from Christ, separate from Christ, Christ still looked down on us, loved us, and redeemed us, and calls us his children. What remarkable, remarkable grace we see. Now, listen, we may wonder why these particular details were included on Why John decides to include gruesome, violent details, particular details in in our scripture. But there are many reasons for this. We're going to see that now in our text as we read verses 35 through 37. Why would he include in this story these things? We really need to see these, but look at what the text says. Verse 35 says, And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, They shall look on him whom they pierced. So the first reason that we see we've been given all these particular details about what happened that day is so that we would be provided with an eyewitness account. We need that. Uh, The details included here are things that the Apostle John saw and heard firsthand. He's conveying these things so that all the people who would ever read this book would read and know so that they would believe his account. This is the ordained means by which that the Lord has so gratefully chosen as his vehicle to share his truth of the gospel message to the lost and dying world. His word. Using the eyewitness account of these men and divinely inspired by the Spirit, this is the means God has chosen to make his gospel known to the world. And it's interesting that so many critics are quick to criticize not only the message, but the vehicle the Lord has chosen to speak to us. But when you think about it, what the Lord has done here in giving and preserving his text, his scriptures, it's brilliant. That he should have chosen such a medium as his holy word in written form with such eyewitness accounts committing it to writing in such languages as Hebrew and Greek is absolutely astounding. And the fact that we still have this today and he's still preserving it today is proof of how astounding and amazing that is. I'm so thankful God gave us his word. And that these, this word isn't... Is it just feeble myths or, uh, or, or um, fables? They are true accounts of men who have witnessed these things, who are giving eyewitness accounts of what God has spoken to them or shown them in, in such ways. That's how we know the scriptures are true. Well, another reason the Lord has included these particular gruesome details surrounding the death of Jesus is that we would have no doubt that G- Jesus was truly human. We have no doubt whatsoever that Jesus was truly human. See, these days, people really don't have an issue with believing that Jesus existed and fully human. Today, people more and more out are apt to doubt his deity, right? It's okay. I believe Jesus was a guy, but you don't tell me he's God. He couldn't be God. Well, grant you he's a man, but 
a good man at that, but he certainly wasn't God. Well, back in the time when, when John wrote this account, this gospel, if you've been to our Sunday school class, you'll know this, there was a prevailing Greek philosophy that went by the name Gnosticism. And the Gnostics believed in a strict dichotomy between things spiritual and things physical. They believed that the material world and material things were corrupt and, and the spiritual or immaterial world was pure. Well, and there's a, a group that's heavily influenced by the Gnostics known as the Docetists. And, be, and because they viewed the material as being corrupt and because they, at the same time, believed that Jesus was perfect, they refused to believe that Jesus was fully human. They believed that Jesus was only a spirit that appeared to be human. Well, as an eyewitness, remember, John has gone into great detail in order to show us the true humanity of Jesus. He does so as well in the opening words of his epistle in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, where he says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and, and touched with our hands, is the word of life, this man, Jesus Christ. And that's why here in this account, John mentions things like the spear being thrust into Jesus' side. That would only happen to a human body. Incidentally, this is the same wound, by the way, that Jesus would show doubting Thomas in order to prove that he truly risen from the dead. Thomas says, I, I know that you were punctured there. You were dead. You can't be alive. Jesus said, look, it's me. Look, it's my wounds. Come, uh, touch it. In order for Jesus to truly be a savior, friends, he had to be truly human. He had to become a man in order to fix what the first man, Adam, broke. He had to become a man in order to be able to sympathize with us, to be able to minister to us and comfort us as his people in our infirmities. He can only do that if he himself was also human. Continuing to be what he was, he became what he was not. Do you ever think about that? Though we don't understand all the details of what is referred to as the hypostatic union, that's just a big theological phrase for having two natures in one person, and Jesus being both fully God and fully man. Though we don't understand all of this, we do know this. Jesus is fully God, and he is fully man. A question 39 of the Westminster Catechism asks this question. It says this, it says, Why was it requisite that the mediator should be man? And the answer is, it was requisite that the mediator should be man, that he might advance our nature, uh, perform obedience to the law, suffer and make intercession for us in our nature, have a fellow feeling of our infirmities, that we might receive the adoption of sons and have comfort and access with boldness unto the throne of grace. Certainly it's important. But not only does John not want us to doubt that Jesus was truly human, not only does he want to emphasize the humanity of Jesus, but he also wants to emphasize the true death of Jesus. That's why he gave us these particular details. So we know not only would we have doubt that he was truly human, but we would know, certainly not doubt that he was truly dead. See, church family, if Jesus wasn't truly human and he didn't truly die, then he accomplished absolutely nothing for us. Nothing. Uh, when God told Adam that he would surely die as a result of his sin in the garden, death became something that the second Adam would have to deal with. 
that he would have to face, something he would have to endure himself, Jesus had to truly die. J.C. Ryle said this, speaking of the death of Jesus. He says, he did not merely faint or swoon away or become insensible as some have dared to insinuate. His heart actually ceased to beat and he actually died. Great indeed was the importance of this fact. We must all see on a moment's reflection that without a real death, there could be no real sacrifice that without a real death, there could be no real resurrection, and that without a real death and real resurrection, the whole of Christianity is a house built on sand and has no foundation at all. One thing to consider, by the way, is the fact that, that when, when Jesus says he is able, as we saw last week, to sympathize with us in all our weaknesses, right? He says that. That you and all your weakness and infirmities, Jesus is able to sympathize with you. That includes the ugly reality of death, friends. You know that? Uh, Bruce Milne went on to say this of Jesus. He says, he enters into the full reality of death, not merely walking with us right up to the door, only to pull back at the final second, leaving us to walk the dark valley on our own. He comes all the way with us, right into the gray, after-death world of funeral parlors and the making of arrangements for the disposing of the body, the world of strained faces, hushed voices, and tear-stained eyes. He takes his place within the world of the receding past where death's destructive power is so real and irreversible, dead, buried, gone. And this is such a comfort to us if you've experienced loss, friends. Or if you yourself feel that you are facing a death's door soon, Jesus knows what it's like. What kind of God would willingly come into the world to die in order he might sympathize with you in your death? What a tremendous love this is. Do you know that today? He experienced that as one not only who died himself, but who lost a good friend. When he was weeping at the tomb of Lazarus, he's able to sympathize with us in that way. If you've lost someone close to you, and, and it's, it's pain, isn't it? It's just painful. You grieve, but friends, the God of the universe makes it so you don't have to grieve alone. He's come down to grieve with you to minister to you. He knew he was gonna raise Lazarus from the dead, but what did Jesus do with his sisters, Martha and Mary? He wept with them, alongside them, ministering to them. Friends, there's great comfort even facing the most terrible reality of this life in death. There's comfort because Jesus has come to sympathize with us. He's able to sympathize with us in that way, but he's also able to sympathize with us in death itself. He died. He can and he does comfort us in life and in death. Ultimately, however, the biggest reason John provides us with so many intricate details in this text is because they're all done in perfect fulfillment with Scripture. John always points us back to the Word, right? His whole purpose is that, so you may hear this gospel and you may believe in the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have faith in his name. John knew what Paul knows, that faith comes by hearing and hearing 
by the word of Christ. And so he, he ultimately gives us all these details so we would know they're in per- perfect fulfillment with Scripture. The only way these things could be done with perfect harmony of the Scriptures, which were written hundreds of year earlier, years earlier, excuse me, is if, in fact, Jesus was God. Only God could orchestrate things so perfectly as this to know the exact detail that would surround his death. Jesus, you see, is king even in overseeing his own death. He gave his life voluntarily. He did this all of himself. And in the detail of the breaking of legs and the piercing of his side, John sees this as fulfillment of scripture. With regards to his bones not being broken, not only do we look at Psalm 22 last week, which if you didn't get to read it, read it again. He, he ties it to one of at least really two passages or maybe even both. It, it may be that he sees Jesus here as the Passover lamb of God in Exodus chapter 12, verse 46. I'm not going to read that, but you'll know in, in that passage, it tells you how no bones in the lamb of the Passover meal that is eaten should be broken. We know the illustration there, right? So seeing how Jesus is the Lamb of God, the perfect Passover Lamb of God, the fact his bones weren't broken ties him back to the Passover meal. He is the fulfillment of all things represented at the Passover. But could it also be a reference to the righteous man of Psalm 3420, the brother Burton read for us, where it says he keeps all his bones and none of them is broken? Absolutely. It's just perfect fulfillment of Scripture. Then with regard to Jesus being pierced in his side, John sees this, I believe, as as being a fulfillment of Zechariah 12.10. The Scripture says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. See, there are references to looking on him who they have pierced. Scripture is fulfilled in this passage. We're going to see even more of that in just a moment. Well, let's move on now to consider a final point in verses 38 through 42. Let's go ahead and read that text together. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews." Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now, as noted earlier, remember John had had written these things in order that uh, the purpose would be that the believers or the people who'd read these things would become believers. He wrote these that his readers would believe in that which he had written. Nobody, by the way, can read or listen to this account and remain detached from its implications. You cannot read this and just simply separate. In other words, every person who has either read this account, heard it preached, must respond. Uh, The truths expressed in this account demand the response of faith. 
They demand and even require that men believe not just the truth about Jesus, but believe in the person and work of Jesus for salvation. And so we see that response by two men here at the end of our passage, Joseph of Arimathea and and Nicodemus. And what we see really is two former cowards respond with unashamed faith. I want you to see that. This is what we have here. Two former cowards respond with unashamed faith. These two men, it even says in the scriptures, were, were too scared to come out and show that they were disciples of Jesus. And we know even just reading that, we know that's wrong, right? We know that it ought not be so. You cannot be a true disciple of Jesus and not let other people know. You cannot be a true disciple and pretend like you are not a disciple. And and that is what this man was doing. Joseph Arimathea says he was a true disciple of Jesus, but he feared man. He feared what others would think about his faith or his love for Jesus Christ. That, friends, is wrong. Same thing with Nicodemus, who we know came to Jesus by night because he was too embarrassed to talk to Jesus where others could see him. But we see something wonderful happen in this account. They don't remain in that condition or state. Uh, Both of these men, who were once too ashamed, too scared to declare their faith, love, and support for Jesus publicly, now come forward for all to see. I love this wonderful detail in Holy Scriptures. Because what these two men likely did, or did, likely cost them greatly. This was going to cost them something. These men, remember, they were members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership. For them to go to to such great lengths to provide a costly grave for Jesus, to bury him with the amount of spices, by the way, that were fit for a king. The detail included there, those spices are only ones that were given for a king's burial. That shows what a wonderful work God did in their hearts. But what's even more amazing as I considered this and read this this week is when they decided to step forward. The, The timing Why did they step forward at this particular point? If you were going to step forward and say you were a true disciple of Jesus Christ, his death probably wouldn't be the ideal place for you to choose to do that. Why should I show this love and appreciation for him now that he's dead? I'll tell you why they did it, because God gave them faith to do it. What that shows is, it shows us that God is the one who must grant faith. It has nothing to do with circumstances. Friends, remember, sometimes we walk into circumstances with people, people who are unbelievers and think there's just no way this person is going to be persuaded to know Jesus. Even something as sharing John 3.16 with someone, this guy's so intellectual, there is no way he is ever going to believe this, and sure enough, that's the very thing God uses to open the heart of that person. Church family, can you, can you hear my heart on this? We must never underestimate the power of the Spirit as he is at work amongst the hearts of people. Ever. It's amazing that these men chose to come to show and declare their faith and love for Jesus at his death. Of all times, at his death. But 
not surprisingly enough, this burial of Jesus is also, you guessed it, a fulfillment of scripture. It was said of the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was a rich man in his death. Notice this, Joseph of Arimathea, he was a rich man. And he provided a costly tomb for Jesus to be buried in, in fulfillment of scripture. It's also, by the way, a fulfillment of Psalm 16, where we're told that the Holy One will not undergo decay. It's, it's not just coincidence, by the way, that this was a, a new tomb. See, what they did back then is, is usually if the person who died didn't have any money, they would throw them in a tomb with a lot of other dead bodies. They could have buried Jesus in one of the many tombs there that were in existence. They had those tombs. They just, let's toss them in and be done with it. They could have done that with Jesus, and yet they didn't in fulfillment of Scripture. And from the faith of these two men, we learn a couple of things, by the way. First with Joseph. Joseph was virtually unknown until we come across him here in this passage. We don't hear much about this guy. But yet, though he was relatively unknown to others within the broader church of Christ, we are shown that he had a great love for Jesus Christ. It's easy to believe that there are a number of people in, in, in Christ's church who are what we are considered, uh, what we consider quiet servants. We have a, a number of those here, disciples who will never become famous or popular. I like to think that there are a number of faithful ministers who have served Christ for most of their lives in very small and rural congregations who we have never heard about. And yet what's encouraging here is that the Lord knows just how much they love him and how faithful they have been to serve him with all of their lives. I love how J.C. Ryle put it. He put it in these words. He says, it is not those who make the greatest show in the church who are always found the closest friends of Christ. That's true. Church, you don't need to set out to make a name for yourself within Christ's church in order to prove your love for Jesus. Here's an idea. Just be faithful and serve him in all your relationships and all your life. Don't be concerned with whether or not people will notice or if your name will become great for becoming a lover or follower of Jesus. Just be faithful. Also with Nicodemus, I think we could learn something here as well. We might learn the reality that many, many start out weak in their faith in Christ, yet they finish strong. So the lesson here is we shouldn't lose heart in the fact that people aren't progressing in their faith the way we want to see them progressing. Uh, the Lord, guys, God Almighty is the one who begins and completes the work in his people according to his grace. In his appointed time. So, so if we belong to Jesus, we know the fact that he began a good work in us. And that he will be faithful to complete it. And friends, we need to be, learn to be content with that. To say, I see a small beginning in this person and I see a lot of struggle going on in their lives. They don't seem to be really walking too well. But we don't know what the Lord is doing. We are so quick to judge whether or not somebody has salvation in Christ or not. And yet we, we often don't police ourselves that hard. We're very quick to police others and say, well, they must not be a Christian. And yet, 
many of us forget that it's God's work, not only in salvation, but sanctification. That's his work. He does the work of growing you to be more like Jesus. And so, yes, the church has avenues for encouraging and even disciplining lack of faith sometimes. But we are far too quick to put the label, they must not be a Christian, on top of people's heads. On top of their names. We should not lose heart that people aren't progressing in their faith the way we want to see them progressing. We don't know the time frame that God is using to sanctify that individual. Surely, yes, go and encourage them. Pray for them. Go to them in, in the faith and the things that will strengthen their walks. But church, the charge here is let's not be too quick to judge that they may not be in Christ. Let's concern ourselves with our own pace in sanctification and not read too much into how fast or slow others are progressing. Sure, we all desire to see people progress. That's a good thing, by the way. We ought to want one another to grow in Christ-likeness. We should, by the way, also see progress. To those who truly belong to Jesus, they, they will grow to be more like Jesus. But again, the charge is let's not be quick to judge others because they happen to progress slower than we would like to see them progress. We know that, I believe that Nicodemus came towards the middle of Jesus' ministry. That's John, thir John 3, right? The beginning of this book. We don't really see him mentioned at all until the end of this book. And I bet many would like to question whether or not he truly believed in Jesus. And I'd hate to, to be someone to be discouraged from the church because they were questioned far too early about their salvation as opposed to just prayed for, encouraged, loved, ministered to in faith. That's the Lord's business. It's not ours. He knows who are his. And he's given his churches the avenue of discipline in order to walk that out. He's given us reasons and, and, and avenues to see whether or not they are his. Let's not be too quick to judge. But I think the real charge in this last section uh, comes to a lot of what I would consider our men. I feel like I, probably everyone could attest to being a coward for the Lord, but I, I think there's something about the word coward that strikes men in the heart, right? In fact, if you were to call somebody a coward in the Old West days, you'd be looking at a, a duel outside the saloon, right? At least that's what the John Wayne movies tell me. But I want to tell you something. I, maybe you would consider, you would never consider yourself a coward in any way, shape, or form. Men. But can I tell you something? What do you call someone who's afraid to lead their children in the word every night because they just feel like they don't know enough? Who, who man, who you challenge them to something physical and they're, they're ready to go. But with the charge of God's word, to love their children well, to serve their wife, to teach their children the word, and they're afraid. They're terrified. What do you call someone who has worked at a particular office or place for many, many years, who loved Jesus, who serves Jesus, who knows Jesus, but nobody there knows they belong to him? When, when the, the topic of faith or religion comes up, they bolt. Friends, be encouraged if, if you would consider yourself a spiritual coward. 
It's Christ's work in you that'll give you the boldness to live for him. Trust him, rest in him, and be bold for the gospel's sake. Be bold for the sake of your family. Church family, next week we have a baby dedication here, and I love the charge to the church that we are to assist parents, to encourage parents. but, But fathers... It's not solely the church's job to teach your kids about Christ. It's solely your job, and we're here to help. And not not even just mothers. Fathers, I'm speaking to you. Do not be spiritual cowards with your children. What they need from you most is not even a roof over their head, enough money in the bank to give them all the toys they want. They need to see Jesus in you. They need you to spend time with them and love them unto Christ. They need you at five minutes a night to open their kids' Bible or your Bible and read one verse, two verse, and pray with them every night. That's what the kids in this community need. We have bought the lie that our providing for our kids physically, financially, is enough as fathers, and it's not. Your command is to love them as Christ loves his church. Your wife and your kids, you self-sacrifice. You not only provide for them physically, provide them financially, but you provide for them spiritually as well. Do not be a spiritual coward like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Be bold for the sake of the gospel and grace and show your children Jesus, and they will learn to do the same. Would you do me a favor? As you know, when I'm preaching to you, I'm preaching to myself as well. Would you pray for me in this? That though, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't just bank on the fact that I'm a pastor, so my kids will know. But I would teach them diligently, live diligently in Christ, in grace, so that they may see Christ. We're here for that, for one another, to pray alongside each other, to lead our families well. If you don't have any children, if you just have a spouse, that command goes directly to your spouse. Love them. Husbands are to teach their wives. You know that, right? And yet, the the, the heartbreaking thing in the evangelical community today is to see wives who are so diligent in the word of God, and yet their husbands know little to nothing. Your wife needs you, husband, to walk through the word of God with her, to teach her, to love her. Men, we would not want to be called cowards in any way, shape, or form. That word just just irks me, even saying it out loud. So let's not be spiritual cowards. Let's rest in the boldness that the Holy Spirit provides The same boldness that was with Peter and John facing the government and saying, are we to obey you rather than God? No, we'll obey God even if it costs us our lives or prison. That same Holy Spirit boldness is given to you if you're in Christ. Surely we can lead our families. Surely we can love them with the gospel. But friends, join me because we are so desperately in need of help. Every man, woman, and child We're desperate for the need of Christ's help. And look, he provides it. He granted Joseph and Nicodemus this faith. 
he'll grant it to you as well, to live for him boldly, unashamedly, so you might be a light in your community for the sake of the gospel, so a lost and dying world might see and know the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, and the work he's accomplished for them. Let's stand together as we pray.